Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman on this and I'm Glenn McDorman. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the short story Parker's Back published by Flannery O'Connor in 1965. This story was nominated by one of our really generous Patreon supporters and then voted on uh, really in droves by the rest of our Patreon supporters. And I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who participates in this means of selecting what we cover on the show. We are still at a point here where everything that we're doing on Elder Sign is nominated or commissioned by Patreon supporters. And that's just really phenomenal. It takes a lot of pressure off of us, frankly. Yeah, it really does. I mean, every type of support we get is a big deal. And if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, please go to our page, patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media, I should really say, uh, and take a look at what we have. I, I was just looking at it the other day. We have somehow over 200 bonus episodes on Patreon, and that's a, that's a great deal. And then you get to participate in all of these nominations and voting on what we cover. It's worth doing. It's worth at least checking out if you like what we do on the show. And if you can't do that, please review us. That also helps a huge amount. So lots of ways to support the network if you enjoy listening to what we're doing. But as you said, Glenn, we are here to talk about Flannery O'Connor's story, Parker's Back. This is the last story that Flannery O'Connor published while she was still living. Um, And I really enjoyed this story uh, a lot. And that's because I think I'm I'm an English major who also studied philosophy and uh, was a philosophy (laughs) major and also was like super into theology uh, at the time I was studying those things. And this story kind of has it all. So there will be a lot to talk about in our discussion. But before we get to that, Glenn, uh, let's talk about Parker's back. Yeah, I think this story has one of the most technically perfect opening paragraphs that I've come across. So uh, I'm not going to ruin it by paraphrasing it. I'm just going to read it straight into the microphone here to get us started. Parker's wife was sitting on the front porch floor, snapping beans. Parker was sitting on the step, some distance away, watching her, sullenly. She was plain, plain. The skin on her face was thin and drawn as tight as the skin on an onion, and her eyes were gray and sharp like the points of two ice picks. Parker understood why he had married her. He couldn't have got her any other way. But he couldn't understand why he stayed with her now. She was pregnant, and pregnant women were not his favorite kind. Nevertheless, he stayed as if she had him conjured. He was puzzled and ashamed of himself. And what I love about this paragraph is that it tells us almost everything we need to know about Parker, though not quite everything, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, I think my favorite line in this paragraph is, she was pregnant, and pregnant women were not his favorite kind. Uh, (laughs) Seems like a pretty good summation of the quality of Parker. It is. It's really a funny line as well. And I think you get that classic Flannery O'Connor humor, just even in this first paragraph of the story, that kind of dark humor, that sharp observation and... uh, really funny sense of who her characters are. But you're also right to point out, Glenn, that this story is a a shining example of technical prowess. And I mean the story, not just this opening paragraph. And and that shouldn't surprise us. O'Connor has been long enshrined in the pantheon of great American writers. And this opening paragraph is a great example of why that is the case. We have about six or so lines, and we learn, as you said, just about everything we need to learn about both characters. And at the same time, we're drawn into our title character's conflict, Parker's conflict. His wife is a cold woman. She's pregnant. 
and he doesn't want to be with her. He doesn't even know why he's with her in the first place. And there's things he doesn't know about himself. And that's also an important part of his character. So already here, we're being promised a story where a main character will need to engage in some sort of self-discovery, a kind of quest of self-discovery. And we'll soon learn that that's something that he's always been up to his whole life. And it's also maybe a journey that his wife has never taken. Uh, And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but To return to the technical power here of this opening paragraph, O'Connor's both grammatical and storytelling style is really worthy of studying if you have questions about how to capture the sense of your character's lives in only a few pages, as O'Connor does here. There's so much that animates the characters in these opening sentences. You know, we see what they're doing now. We see what they're thinking about, and we see what they're seeing and how they feel about it. So we have setting, internal life and subjectivity and activity, and it all flows and comes into focus by keeping us as readers tight in Parker's point of view, even though we've got an omniscient third-person narrator. And I think the most compelling thing about this paragraph is that we are introduced to a character who's laid bare to us in such a way that... Well, maybe we shouldn't like him because, I don't know, he's unethical and that's kind of trendy to like unethical characters, I suppose. His presentation to us is so simple and so matter of fact that you can't help but want to learn more about him. His flaws make him attractive to us, I think. And I always appreciate a flawed character who knows about their flaws, but isn't overcome with angst from having flaws. And I think it's a really refreshing position to take even now, you know, 50 years or 60 years on from when this story was written. uh, It's a refreshing position to take towards characters. Yeah. I don't know that Parker is really an angsty character the way that like, I don't know, Brat Pat stories are, or really anything about teenagers, I guess. Right. Parker seems like someone who, if anything, is afflicted with ennui rather than angst. And uh, for the most part, I think I prefer stories about people with ennui <laughs> to stories about people with with angst. And uh, yeah, I don't like Parker in the sense of approving of him or wanting to be his friend, but I am interested in him, but I am interested in him as a character. And that's that's awesome. It is awesome. And I think that like when we were talking about a study in Scarlet, giving us characters with flaws right up front makes them really interesting. It makes them relatable because, hey, we've all got flaws. And um, being honest about them up front is a great way to draw readers into your story. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that we need to know, or at least should know about Parker before we actually get into the plot. And I guess really the thing up front that we should say is that Parker has a lot of tattoos. He has them everywhere except his back. And uh, hey, in the back, that's the name of the story here. It's the back of Parker, Parker's back. (laughs) And uh, Parker is very proud of these tattoos. He has an eagle. He has a serpent coiled around his shield. He's got lots of hearts. He's got playing cards. And all that's just on one arm. So this is actually a pretty small percentage of the tattoos that he has. And Parker has acquired these tattoos in the Navy, the U.S. Navy, I should say. And I I guess we should also add that this story is set in the American South. But Parker has been a sailor, and as such, he's been all around the world, and he has tried to get a tattoo every place he's been. I think you and I know a lot of people with that exact same story here, so there's a nice reality (laughs) effect here. We should also say a little bit about Parker's wife before we move on to, uh, first, Her name is Sarah, though we don't learn that for nearly 10 pages, really about halfway through the story, we finally learn her name. And 
Sarah hates his tattoos, and maybe in general just hates anything fun. At least that's Parker's perspective on this. And really, what we're trying to say here, what I'm trying to say here, is that Sarah is a teetotaling type of Christian for whom most forms of pleasure are just off the table, because really, pleasure itself is inherently sinful. Another thing we should know about Parker, I think, can best be encapsulated by uh, quoting the text again. And here, O'Connor writes, He had had other women, but he had planned never to get himself tied up legally. And quite a bit of this tale really is the backstory of how Parker has wound up with an ugly wife he doesn't like, and who clearly doesn't like him either. (laughs) And the deal is that they had a bit of a meet-cute when Parker's car broke down, or really his, his pickup truck broke down, while he was selling fruit in the countryside after he got out of the Navy. She came to help him, but mostly scolded him for swearing, for having tattoos. But somehow, still, he was sexually attracted to her, and he pursued her and wound up marrying her because she would not have sex with him unless they were married. Yeah, it's a, it's a tale as old as time here. Uh, there's, there's a lot to say about both Parker and Sarah uh, in this section here. I, I still find Parker such a an interesting and compelling character. You know, first of all, we learn that his name is Obadiah Alihu or O.E. Parker. Uh, And plenty of ink has been spilled on the meaning of this name. Obadiah means servant of God. And as O'Connor is a Catholic writer, uh, we can take that name choice to be meaningful in terms of, say, Parker's destiny or fate as a character, which does come into play in this story. So there are a few things that I'd like to pull out of the text with that in mind. I'll start by saying that Parker and Sarah Ruth got married at a county courthouse because Sarah Ruth thinks churches are idolatrous. That bit of irony will come back to us uh, later on in the story in a different form. Um, And we can probably take idolatrous here literally not in some sense of worshiping the wrong thing in some abstract way, but the sense that most churches have some kind of icon present within them, literally a figure of either Christ or the cross or any kind of image of uh, a religious matter, you know, halos around a saint's head, something like that. And Sarah thinks these things are evil in in a way because um, Sarah's father was a traveling evangelical preacher. And so we get this sense that Sarah grew up pretty poor in an extremely religious household, and that's all that she knows. And on the other hand, then, we have Parker, whose body is covered in iconography. Maybe not religious iconography, but iconography in general. Symbols. And he understands, too, why Sarah Ruth married him. He understands her psychology, in a sense. He thinks that her protestations about his tattoos and about everything wrong with the world, like the fact of automobiles, really betray an attraction to just those things. Parker's problem is he doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand his sexual attraction to Sarah. It's inexplicable to him, as is anything else he's done basically in his life. The one thing Parker does know about himself, though, is to trust his instincts. Really, he trusts that his instincts are leading him towards some kind of fulfillment. And this is where we get this business about why he doesn't have a tattoo on his back, uh, because he likes to look at his tattoos 
until he gets tired of his tattoos and then he needs to find something else to plug this kind of like fulfillment hole uh, that he's so deeply aware of in himself. So Parker's unaware of a lot of his actions, but he knows he's seeking for satisfaction and he thinks that by following his instincts, he'll be led to some kind of satisfaction. So what Parker is chasing throughout his life is actually a feeling of wonder or awe that he felt once as a kid when he saw a tattooed man at the circus. And so he's trying to imitate that feeling in himself by covering himself in tattoos. Parker doesn't realize, though, that that feeling came from outside of himself, from being in awe with something or someone else and not himself. Also, you know, his tattoos, their designs, getting them haphazardly indicate to us that Parker's a poor planner. Also, the fact that he's, you know, buying fruit by the bushel and selling it by the pound and so forth. Like he's not a man who is planning out his life and having a life strategy. Yeah. And some of his tattoos are real dumb as well. I mean, they're no. bad oh, yeah, tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip tattooed like on his abdomen for for some reason it doesn't make any sense at all yeah there's not not a good not a good planner doesn't think things out uh i think lizard brain maybe is a term that we might uh, we might today use to describe how parker operates yeah exactly and and you know, chasing this tattoo satisfaction or fulfillment is in a strange way what led him you know to be a wall from the navy at least this feeling of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment and then when he got back the navy caught up with him he ended up with a doing a stint in the brig and getting a dishonorable discharge so all what we really need to know about parker to understand the story is that parker is in search of a moment of satisfaction he's trying to recreate the sense of wonder that he felt as a child and when he looks at himself, he feels dissatisfied because all of the things that he's done, all the things he's put on his body, they don't add up to anything. The, the parts are less than the sum of the whole, right? It's kind of this anti-gestalt uh, sort of situation. But he does have this blank space and uh, maybe a name or something to put there to satisfy Sarah Ruth because he's finally so dissatisfied with his life that he thinks maybe he should sacrifice something of himself, perhaps to satisfy uh, someone else, you know, to, to take this step of self-sacrifice. And so that's where his mind is when we kind of meet him in the story. Um, but let's return more to that tattoos here because they really are the focus of the story. There are plenty of papers you can read about the imagery given to us in the tattoos, uh, the way they provide perhaps some symbolic value to the story. But I think the major takeaway from the tattoos are, you know, what I've just mentioned. There is one more thing about O'Connor's use of imagery here that's not related to tattoos that I want to talk about before we get into the final action of the story. And it's this. That meet cute that you mentioned, Glenn, is full of imagery and actual the reality involving apples and snakes and so forth. This is the most basic imagery you're going to get about the fall of man. In literature, O'Connor hides it well enough or makes it seem so matter-of-fact and real that unless you're reading the story on the symbolic level, you might just skim over it. Uh, and the fall of man is, you know, within the Christian faith, this moment of the introduction of sin into our reality. It involves an apple and a snake. So even though Sarah Ruth is maybe a little bit on the radical side of Christianity, she does bring an awareness of sin into Parker's life. You know, the fact that he can't measure up to 
you know, not just Sarah Ruth's standard, but perhaps God's, though he doesn't believe in God. And he really hates to hear about it all the time because Sarah Ruth is just telling him about God's judgment, which he knows is really her judgment. And uh, Parker's, I don't know, full of too much vitality, not to wonder about the joy side of the equation. Like joy is completely absent from Sarah Ruth's life. Uh, But this kind of awareness of sin, the scene here is a step towards a kind of end that he is being pulled towards, you know, as we move towards the conclusion of the story. Uh, But an ending doesn't mean things will necessarily be better for him as he's moving perhaps into this moment of conversion. But I do think it's important to emphasize here. I mean, and you you have, I'm just repeating it for like double, triple emphasis here, but it's important (laughs) to to recognize here, right? That, that Parker, he does hate, his life in some pretty massive way, but he's not doing the thing that so many, well, real people, but also so many characters in literature do in exactly this situation, which is just walk out, right? This is actually someone who's trying to make this work somehow, no matter what all of his other despicable or at least mildly unrespectable uh, qualities he has. He is still trying to figure things out and is, is, staying here. And so that's something I think that's very interesting and very important about Parker that uh, I'm sure we will we will call more attention to in the discussion as we get there. But yeah, let me pick up on this, uh, this business with Parker painting his life, because I think that's really the single sentence summation of what we have talked about so far, right? He's trapped in this marriage. He's about to be trapped by parenthood. He really just works as a handyman for an old woman in town, but he is determined to do something to have this relationship with Sarah, but also to make Sarah start believing in fun. And he thinks that getting just the right tattoo will do the trick. And of course, as you said, Brandon, the only space he has left is his back. And he's been pitching ideas to Sarah, but she keeps shooting down all of his ideas. They're all dumb for her. And also she just doesn't like the idea of tattoos to begin with. But then while Parker is working for this old woman, working as a handyman, he has a a vehicle accident and he's physically fine, but he's rattled and he drives into the big city, which is 50 miles away. And he just goes straight to a tattoo parlor. It's a, a tattoo parlor that he's been to before. And now he knows what it is that he wants on the one blank space on his body, his back. And what he wants is God. Now, the tattoo artist gives him the book of images that he can do, and Parker flips to that section of Christian art, and Parker lands on the haloed head of a flat, stern, Byzantine Christ with all-demanding eyes. And this is going to be a big piece, so it's going to take two days to get it tattooed onto his back. So Parker just stays in the city without getting any kind of message back to Sarah either. In fact, it's not even something that he considers doing. But... Once he gets home, he's super eager to show her this stern, demanding Christ that he's put on his back. But of course, she's not pleased that he absconded. And in the meantime, the old woman has come looking for him because Parker ran off after busting up her tractor, which means now that Sarah also knows that Parker was lying to her about some things concerning the the, the nature of his employer. And so she's very mad and she lets him know it. And then when Parker tries to impress her with this new tattoo, she just gets even madder because, you know, what he's done here, putting an image of Christ on his back, what he's done is 
idolatry and she actually starts beating him with a broom so parker runs out of the house and leans against a tree in their yard and he cries like a baby and that is where we leave him that's how the story ends trees are mentioned twice in this story and both times they're mentioned there's some religious significance associated with them uh the first time tree the tree kind of comes up as a big deal as a part of the plot uh, is when Parker is working at that old woman's house. You know, this woman that he keeps on telling his wife is, you know, super hot and is into him just to see if she can rile her up in any way at all. But Parker's working at the house before, you know, before he goes to get this tattoo and he crashes the tractor into the tree. Uh, he He's thrown off of the tractor violently by a tree branch. And then everything lights on fire and this is when he has this urgent need to get this religious tattoo and then at the end of the story he finds some solace in the tree or at least it's a safe place for him to weep and hide from his abusive wife so if we're tracking tree imagery here we have this violent interaction with the tree and then this moment of finding some solace in the tree or some relief or some release maybe and this is actually how christianity has sort of transformed the image of the cross, also known as the tree from time to time over the centuries, right? At first, the cross is a symbol of a violent death reserved for criminals and political dissidents pre-Christianity, but now within Christianity over the centuries or millennia, it's viewed as a symbol of mercy and succor, a symbol of rescue from sin and so forth. So we have this kind of maybe conversion imagery from a secular understanding of the tree to a spiritual one um, as this story progresses. But Sarah Ruth is seemingly kept from this network of symbolism, or maybe we could call it semiotic power, because she rejects all iconography as being idolatrous and sinful. And maybe that's where we'll start the discussion here, uh, looking at the big thematic sweep of the story. And then we'll talk a little bit about craft as well. And it seems to me that this story is caught up in a discussion about the value of images or icons or semiotic units, symbols, um, and their power to generate meaning. We can leave aside the religious implications here, if you like, for the time being, and just look at the way that O'Connor is dealing with a character who is in a world full of these network of symbols that provide meaning or perhaps uh, withhold meaning from Parker, as the case may be. So by contrasting Parker and Sarah Ruth, what point do you think, Glenn, that Flannery O'Connor is making with regards to the value of our relationship with symbols or icons as human? Is there an inherent spiritual layer to being initiated into a system of symbols? What's what's going on, in other words, with symbols and the characters in the story? Right. I think one way to to consider this 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 question here is to think about the manner in which Parker has been selecting what he's gotten tattooed on his body and and, and also where it's been, uh, which is to say that he's not put any consideration really <laughs> into that. He's ex <laughs> we're explicitly told that he just picks things out of the book that a particular tattoo parlor has and doesn't really care what it is. None of it means any anything to him. He does have one tattoo that he got when he was quite young. In fact, uh, it's one that he didn't 
pay for. And it is actually has his mother's initials on it. It's, you know, it's like an I love, I love you, mom sort of tattoo that she <laughs> she paid for. And it's the only tattoo that has had any meaning. And we're told also that he pretends that it doesn't have anything to do with her. So he's been getting all of this art, all of these images, all of this iconography put onto his body, which is a pretty serious, permanent, also intimate thing to do without actually caring about what the about what any of the images are. They have no significance to him, no personal significance, but also not even any real aesthetic or artistic significance either. He just likes the act of tattooing. And as you pointed out, Brandon, he's kind of chasing this feeling that he had when he was a, a kid. He wants to see himself in the mirror and have that same feeling, which he, he never is getting. It's impossible for him to get. But this is a story about the one time he has like a real, some some kind of real ecstatic moment, some moment of ecstasis and and an and epiphany of sorts and says, yes, I want to get something special tattooed on me. And I want to share the specialness of that with my wife. And he goes and, and he goes and does that. And he's so excited about it. And then she hates it. She hates it and it doesn't accomplish what he wanted it to accomplish. And so there's a real sense in just uh, of just the futility of what of what Parker is doing, that he was better off not imbuing any of this with any kind of significance, that the moment he does that, it just crushes him and all he can do is walk away and cry. I feel like, though, that this story is on the side of symbols as being meaningful because Sarah Ruth is such a, a difficult character to like, uh, just as a human being. I mean, maybe you wouldn't hang out with Parker, but you definitely wouldn't hang out with Sarah Ruth and her utter rejection of any image that carries meaning in a sense. I mean, I don't think she'd go. So she does hate automobiles. So she might also really hate that there are stop signs on the road and stuff. And the fact that there are roads and, but she doesn't even seem to find any value in like natural beauty or finding any meaning in some kind of orderly approach to things. I, there's just this, this sense that iconography is good, which is kind of a, a Catholic position, and that the rejection of the image of Christ as being a real person is some kind of fault uh, in, in Sarah Ruth. And I just, I don't know quite what to make of that, but it seems to me as though O'Connor is saying that, hey, there's something really important about participating in this network of symbols. It may, it's part of what makes us human. But on top of that, there can be rather large amount of meaning and beauty when we are designing and participating in a community that values the same symbols. And this is like maybe why Parker and Sarah Ruth are never going to see eye to eye because Sarah Ruth says like, that's not God. God doesn't have look like anything. She has this sense that God is like pure spirit. And so maybe now's a good time to bring uh, the religious component back into the story instead of just thinking about how semiotics functions in our daily life. And wondering, Glenn, do you think that we can read this story as a conversion story, maybe as Parker's conversion? Or do you think that we're left wondering the degree to which this symbol is going to bring meaningful change into Parker's life through a kind of ecstatic religious conversion. Well, I do think this is a conversion moment here. I mean, he's basically encountered a burning bush, right? That's right, more right. or less what's what's happened here, right? <laughs> it's uh, there's some parallels here with the the Moses story in some way, including spending uh, important parts of his life 
floating on the water and uh, quest for for meaning and 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 denying callings and so on. So I think definitely this is a conversion moment. This is a, a moment of religious ecstasy, religious epiphany. But I don't know how it's actually going to affect his life. Because as soon as he tries to share this with his partner, she shuts him down about this. And as we close the curtain on this story, he's by himself and he's weeping and she doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with him. So I don't know what his next move is going to be, right? Is he going to is he going to go out into the world and search for some kind of, of of intellectual or cognitive framework to explain and understand this experience that has happened to him, like go to uh, a, a type of church or something, even though he's going to be alone in all of that, or at least, you know, not with his wife, not with Sarah, and also then presumably not with the, the, the child that they're about to have together. Uh, or is this going to be, or is this going to be a conversion moment in which he does what Christ tells Peter to do, which is leave your family and follow me. Is that what's going to happen here? It's unclear to me. So because we don't know what happens on the next page of this story, um, I guess I have a little trouble reading it, uh, understanding this this conversion moment. Yeah. I mean, certainly that name Obadiah, I think, could give us a hint that Parker's whole life has really been in search of finding someone to be a servant to. It's maybe why he is is interested in Sarah Ruth uh, to begin with. He's certainly kind of a, a slavish in his relationship to her, um, trying to satisfy her, but that's impossible. And, and that's another layer to the story here is this presentation of Sarah Ruth as this quote unquote straight gospel Christian who basically grew up without her dad because he was making money over places and he taught her all sorts of stuff like you can't go to church because churches are bad and only follow my gospel. Um, and then we have that compared with Parker's interest finally, uh, you know, at the end of the story in Christ as primarily a meaningful symbol, you know? So, so th- there's a lot going on with the religious side of the story, but I wonder if you had any sense of whether Parker would bring something like Catholicism or a traditional denominational mode of Christianity to the home and bring Sarah Ruth into communion with other Christians or or have some sort of community that is not just her believing what her dad told her growing up, or if, yeah, I guess this is like what happens on the next page type of question, but thinking about this as just the degree to which Parker's servitude will either take him out in the world or have him convert his household. So one of the things about Parker is that he doesn't really seem to know anything about the world. <laughs> we don't have any sense of his experience. Like he even really himself has gone to a kind of church, knows what churches are, or you know, by which I mean like what what churches are available to him, right? Like where into town, like what's the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist and a Catholic? I have no sense that he has any idea of any of that. He's clearly a very uneducated person and doesn't seem to have a whole lot of real experience of the world that isn't tattoo parlors and gambling and bars and uh, working in the engine room of a destroyer, right? That's, that's his limited experience. So I have trouble seeing him as someone who's going to, one, know what he wants to do or what he ought to do in order to satisfy these new feelings that he has. And and two, that he's going to know how to actually do that. And also, I think he's so cowed by Sarah that I'm not 
that I have a hard time envisioning him even going out, finding a local church that he really likes, uh, maybe doing that sneakily behind her back for a few months <laughs> and then trying to convince her to come one Sunday with him. I just have a hard time seeing that as his next step. On the other hand, that's what conversions are. It's a big change. That's literally what the word means. It's a turnaround. It's an about face. It's a becoming something, someone that you were not before. So maybe this will be one of the positive effects of this conversion moment for him is that this will be the thing, this will be the catalyst that propels Parker to be out in the world in a much more intentional way. So I'm I guess I'm trying to explain. So I guess I'm not really answering your question, Brandon, so much as <laughs> saying I can see both things happening. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen here? I don't know. I struggled with it as well. I think it's kind of a brilliant ending to the to the story. I don't know whether Parker's going to, this is going to wear off and Parker's going to need another tattoo or if he's going to turn Sarah around as well, you know, and, and kind of say like this kind of Christianity that you're participating in is kind of that, that like lacks a network of symbols. Um, is, is it the right one or something like that? I don't even know how he'd find the words to do it, but, uh, I don't know. I guess he, he should probably find a local church <laughs> or get another tattoo. Those are his two options. As far as I'm concerned at the end of the story, let's, uh, let's turn on to craft. Now I don't have too much to say here. Um, but I do want to wrap up the conversation by just talking about takeaways from the craft of the story. This story is, a, is another story that we've read um, that is really worth on the technical level. If you're interested in, in writing and storytelling, looking at paragraph by paragraph just to understand how O'Connor is doing what she's doing. You know, one thing she does in the story is jump around in time frames in a way that still gives the story forward momentum. That's a difficult trick to pull off structurally. So Glenn, I'm wondering, one, if you have any insights into how O'Connor makes that trick work, or if anything jumped out to you as a technical takeaway from the story. Well, maybe nothing technical to say about the technicalities of this story, other than to say that <laughs> it's magnificently told. The prose here is absolutely beautiful. Just the wordsmithing is phenomenal. So on that level, it's just a joy to read this story. You don't even have to have any real interest in what's happening or like the characters or any of that to just enjoy the wordsmithing. Uh, but in terms of, of comparison here, something that occurred to me on my third read of this story, uh, and I don't think this is a novel thing to say uh, is simply that reading this story put me in mind of some other stories that we have read for the show. Uh, specifically here, I'm thinking about Shirley Jackson, that this felt very similar to a Shirley Jackson story. And some of that is about the type of content that we're getting here. We're getting a rural part of America in the second half of the 20th century and looking at the lives of people and of course, and of course, these are both Gothic type writers, one of them writing very much about New England, the other writing here very much about the Deep South. Uh, but there also, I think, were some technical points where they could be compared as well, right? That their, their sentence style, their vocabulary choices, and so on to me felt very similar. And that was just something that I found interesting. I don't have any real point there other than that it struck me as an interesting comparison. I think that is a, a really interesting comparison to make. I, I think that both Jackson and O'Connor are especially good at making use of symbolism, really, and foreshadowing and things like that. And I, you know, in terms of foreshadowing, this is what it gives the story forward momentum is that O'Connor will drop uh, something that makes us interested in what's going to happen next. But then rather than go straight there, she 
walks us back to kind of get us to why the next thing will have meaning as she's moving forward. Uh, and it's a really brilliant trick. I think your mind might have to work that way as a writer in order to pull that technical trick off naturally. But I think you can get your mind to work that way with practice if you're really trying to tell a story in this mode. And uh, boy, I really appreciated reading this story just on the technical level. But I also love um, the, the stories that are examples of how semiotics function um, as well, though that might be reading a little bit uh, backwards in a sense, looking for <laughs> semiotics in a story rather than reading the story and seeing how it makes use of symbolism. This story was a real treat. I suppose uh, uh, maybe it feels a little out of place on a weird fiction podcast, but I'm I'm super glad we got it for this show. I'm glad too. And I hadn't read this story before, so I didn't know if there was anything supernatural going on in it or not. And so uh, in some ways then also this reminded me of uh, our experience with uh, William with William Hope Hodgson's uh, story that we did that uh, also <laughs> had nothing supernatural. That's right. The girl with the gray eyes that also had nothing supernatural going on, but which I thought surely must because it's in this volume uh, of William Hope Hodgson's horror stories. So I had the similar experience here where I was waiting for something supernatural to happen. And that filled the story with kind of a, a sense of, of dread. But even though nothing supernatural happened in this story, there's certainly a weird element to it, right? There's something unsettling happening here. And uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, maybe an outlier, but I think still, still right at home. Absolutely. I think we can at least say that uh, sub, uh, substance dualism plays a, a role in this story. If you dig down a little deep and think about the nature of Parker's soul and what he's searching for and that that's, you know, something without him and it's uh, or outside of him and it's numinous. I can make an argument for the role of substance dualism in this story, which is, as we know, uh, maybe what makes weird fiction weird. But... <laughs> <laughs> Since we're not doing a whole prospectus on a genre here, we should wrap it up. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please do join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. That will get you access to the 200 bonus episodes that Brandon mentioned at the top of the show. And uh, we've got even more bonus episodes and bonus series coming this year on Patreon that we're very, very excited about. So now's a great time to join us. Next time here, we will be back with Mr. Pettinger's Demon by John Connolly. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.